Bob Holden led the state of Missouri during a difficult point in history. And now the Democratic official is looking back at his tenure in office and at the lay of the land in Missouri politics. The Birch Tree Missouri native joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. say, Hands to kiss and babies to shake. (laughs) But uh, no, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis. And our very special guest today, a former state representative, former Missouri treasurer, former staffer to Richard Gephardt, and former governor of this great state of Missouri we have in studio today. Delighted to be with you, Jason. And, and our mystery guest is <laughs> Can you just say Bob Holden, yes. former governor of Missouri. <laughs> we have a winner. We have a winner. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is, I guess, part of our unofficial series of, of, of getting former governors in here, talking about their experience in the executive branch and also about kind of the state of politics today. We're in for a real treat today. But before we kind of veer off into memory lane, we want to know what you're doing now since you are out of elected life and what are the things you're interested in? Well, I, I'm, first of all, keeping very busy. I teach and have a public policy program at Webster University here in St. Louis, which I think is truly a global dynamic institution, one that I didn't know a great deal about until I left office because it's a private institution. But it's got a global reach, which uh, if you'll notice in everything else I do, I focus on how do we move Missouri's economy into this global world. And so I've been very pleased with that. Uh, I also serve as chairman of the Midwest-U.S.-China Association out of Chicago. I work with the East-West Institute Think Tank in uh, New York and the Thai Initiative in Seattle. I've been very active for 30 years uh, with the American Legion Missouri Boys State and Girls State Program, and we've sent uh, students to China to learn more about their culture and government. We've had uh, students from China come and to participate in the American Legion Boys State and Girls State program, and we're getting ready to send about 25 more students from those programs, including also students from Illinois and maybe Ohio, to China this December to participate in the same program. Now, how is the mid the whole Midwest China, I mean, the association that you've been involved in, I mean, for a few years ago, there was this real effort to try to make uh, Lambert Field a, a, a hub for Chinese goods. Uh, they needed some. They needed some tax help from the state. They believed that didn't happen. That seems to kind of fizzle a bit. But I'm just interested in your take on the efforts to try to improve the economic connections between St. Louis and China. Well, this is what makes it so different. We're talking about the 12 Midwestern states, all 12. And as I tell people, I play all 12 states the same way. My job is not to pick and choose whether it be St. Louis or Wichita or Minneapolis. My my responsibility is to try to get interest in China, looking at the Midwest as a place to invest, to create jobs, uh, and produce the quality workforce that uh, we want to have and need to have in the Midwest. What most people don't realize, each individual state doesn't show up on the international economic radar screen except maybe Chicago or uh, Illinois. But you take all 12 states and put them together, and it mirrors the Midwest Governors Association, which I served as chairman of while I was governor. If you take those 12 states, put them together, that's the fifth largest economy in the world. Wow. We, we have 1,300 academic institutions in, in, in the area of law, accounting, business, science, journalism. Uh, we have between 25 and 35 percent of the world's best located somewhere within the Midwest United States. But they're not all in Missouri. They're not all in Kansas, not all in Michigan or Illinois or Minnesota, but it's throughout the region. Mm-hmm. You also take a look. We have the two largest inland waterways in the United States, the Mississippi and the Missouri, Missouri River. River. We are the connector in all the rail transportation, all the highway transportations and the water transportation in the United States. We have high-quality productivity within our workforce in this region. And the question is, if we have all of these assets, 
why haven't we been able to be as successful as California or New York or uh, Florida, states that actually have a lot higher taxes than we do, and we always proclaim, you know, lower the taxes and we're going to create jobs. The jobs are being created in California. They're being created in New York. They're being created in Chicago. They're being created in Miami and, and Austin, Texas. And, it, I, and, and, and except for Texas, so all the taxes are higher. All it, the taxes are higher yeah. because I've, I firmly believe that though the jobs that we want for, for the future for our children and our grandchildren are going to be based on education. Uh, the two things that businesses around the world want and gravitate to is the ability to, to attract and keep and maintain high-quality talent and a good infrastructure moving people and product. And if you can't do those two things, you're not going to be competitive in the global world. So let's try to parlay into your vast life story, as so to speak. Um, I think you're one of two governors who was born in Birch Tree, Missouri. Mel Carnahan Correct. was also born there. Was there I like... was born in Kansas City, but okay. raised on a farm outside of Birch okay. Tree. I was just wondering if there was like a hospital there. It's just like a place where future leaders just gravitate to, or was it just like a coincidence, essentially? Well, Carnahan's dad was a superintendent and then a congressman. At Birch Tree. Yeah, yeah. Yes, at Birch Tree. So tell us a little bit about kind of your upbringing and kind of how you got into politics in the first place. Well, uh, my, my family had lived in Birch Tree for 100-plus years. My dad What'd had they do? Uh, farming. Uh, my grandfather was presiding commissioner in the county for a number of years, had a farm. Uh, my dad had honestly been asked to leave the farm because he wasn't doing what his father wanted him to do. <laughs> Went to Kansas City. Uh, what did he do in Kansas City? And wait, well, wait, wait. What was he doing wrong on the farm? Was he, like, not plowing well enough? Uh, no. His, uh, his father told him that uh, if he didn't smoke or drink, by the time he turned 21, he would give him 100 acres and $100 to start on the farm. Uh -huh. And my dad supposedly started smoking the day before he turned <laughs> 21. See, that's uh, why I asked those questions, because that's really funny. But uh, continue. Because, I mean, that was that independent streak that uh, my father instilled in me that uh, I exhibited uh, throughout my political career, sometime to my benefit and sometimes well, did to you, my— But the key thing, did you smoke before you were 21? Uh, no, and I still okay. don't smoke today. Uh, but, uh, you know, the other thing is about— uh, my dad and mom met each other in Kansas City because her family was one of the original commission companies at the Kansas City Stockyards. Mm -hmm. And they moved back uh, when I was three years old. Uh, and uh, throughout my entire life, uh, I always knew that our dad and mom wanted us to go to college uh, because dad had wanted to go to college, tried to go to college, did not make it at Mizzou because he didn't have any parental help. He went into the military and got tested out at 140-plus IQ. And so he never tried to tell us what to do or anything else, but he wanted his kids to go to college. And so I was the oldest. I went to college. My brother followed me. and he, I think he went to Southwest Missouri State. Southwest. Which, which is what it used to be called before it became Missouri, Missouri State, State University. shortly after you left office. Yeah. And uh, uh, so a brother that uh, went through there, and he's a, he's a judge in Springfield, a brother that's a lawyer in, in Tulsa in Texas, uh, and uh, my career, my sister owns a sporting store in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and was a teacher. So the Holden family is, is very prosperous and has kind of varied professions, it seems. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, if you'll notice, it all centers around a commitment to education uh, more than anything else. Uh, I, I tell the story, which, which is a true one. When I was treasurer, I started the Dollars and Cents program to teach young people how to save, which is my father and mother started giving me in about the eighth grade 25 cents a week uh, with the idea that 10 cents would go to the local bank uh, for my education. Uh, when, I got, when I was in the uh, treasurer's office, I did the Dollars and Cents program, and then I pushed and got it past the most program, mm. which is all based philosophically on that whole concept because uh, I was bound to determine that people could start saving for their children's education for as little as $25 a and time. And for full disclosure, I, I actually am part of the most program. My, my young son is uh, part of that, and hopefully we'll keep adding to it, and he'll his college won't be so unaffordable, but continue. Well, no, but if that's exactly what it's all about, and I, we set it up so people could participate for as little as $25 at a time, and if one child didn't want to use it, it could be transferred to another child 
family and others could put money into that because I wanted young people of modest means to be able to have the ability to go to college just like anybody else. So not to jump around too much, but... But first, I mean, when you were... Okay, so where'd you go to high school, then you went to college, and then and then you were in the military, mm-hmm. and then what caused you to get into politics? Yeah. You obviously <laughs> left the farm. And, and just... Be, Joe right. has to ask where you went to high school, because it's a St. Louis thing, so well, just say Birch that... Birch Tree, in the... Missouri. It was not in, in St. Louis. Okay. Uh, Is it Birch I, Tree, Missouri High School? Birch Tree, yep. yes. A oh. class... Of, I graduated in a class of 25. Wow. I graduated in a class of 900 <laughs> at, in uh, wow. northwest, northwest uh, yeah. Chicago suburbs, but... We do want to know kind of like your first run and why you decided to get into politics well, let, in the first place. Uh, let me uh, step back on the education. Sure. I started out in a one-room schoolhouse and then got transferred to another one-room schoolhouse for my second grade. By the third grade, they consolidated into Birch Tree, mm. and that's how And then I went through. I was taking shorthand and other uh, courses to get enough credits to graduate out of high school to go to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I— Picked Missouri, uh, Southwest Missouri State. It was the closest institution. Uh, I was scared to death because academically, you know, I probably didn't have the best start. Uh, but uh, I went there, became an RA in my second year, which is the first time uh, a, a sophomore had ever been a resident assistant in a dormitory. Got involved in politics because of a professor by the name of Dave Heinlein, who uh, was in international relations, international law. I walked into his office one day and said, I'd, li- I'd like to get involved. What can I do? And he was a sponsor of Student Government Association. He said, well, you ought to think about getting involved. And so I took on an upperclassman for the uh, political science student uh, government association position. A lot, I won that race. Uh, and then I ran for student body president, uh, picked a, a female, which had never been done before, to be my VP. And we lost that race. Uh, but I've always been uh, someone that was not afraid to try to bring about change if I thought change was a thing that needed to occur. Because um, you were a state representative in the Springfield area, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, correct? as a Democrat, which as, was a, a rare species. And in my you were day. particularly young. Well, I was. Yeah, I was about uh, 30. Well, yeah. I, I was just about to kind of jump off that independence streak. I read. Uh, now Senator McCaskill's book, and she mentioned how you were kind of part of this youngish group of legislators who were unafraid to challenge the status quo in the Missouri House. And back then in the, I guess, the 1980s, it was a supermajority Democratic legislature, but it was kind of led by people who had been there forever, like Bob Griffin, the speaker, and many other people. And sometimes you didn't really go along with what they had to say. Is that fair to say? Uh, that That's fair. Uh, at the same time, I think we were also very mind, mindful of how far we could go. Uh, I was the first second-termer to be a chairman of an appropriation committee uh, and uh, uh, was on the budget committee. Uh, my, my job uh, was to, to look at the budgets of all the statewide officials. Uh, and be honest with you, that had not probably been done in my book uh, very well by a prior chairman. It was more a political football, mm-hmm. and I made a commitment that I would run it straight. Uh, I did, and uh, one of the things that was going on in the legislature at that time, uh, uh, Attorney General Webster's father was a state senator, and they took care of the Attorney General's office. Yes, this was I, mentioned in McCaskill's book. We continue. Yeah, well, just for our listeners know, Richard Webster was a Republican. Yes, but even in a in a Jeff City that at that that time was controlled by Democrats. Many people contended that Richard Webster was the most powerful man in Jefferson City, even though he was a Republican and he was in the minority. And he was, and his son was Attorney General. At his the son. Time. Yes. And one of the things, whenever a Democrat would get in trouble uh, ethically or anything else, they'd always appoint Senator Webster to be the chairman of the committee, so it'd be bipartisan. And when in fact uh, he he was there to to play ball with the Democrats so that they could uh, keep control. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, it, uh, anyway, uh, I, I, you know, when, when Speaker Griffin asked me if I would be interested in doing it, I said, yes, if I'm allowed to do it straight. Uh, and he said, yes. And so when the budget came through, uh, I gave uh, Bill Webster the same amount as anybody else, no more. It went to the Senate. Uh, they put more money into his uh, appropriation than anybody else, and I refused to budge in the conference committee. Uh, and finally, we got uh, got it settled. 
I won. And I had Democratic senators standing up on the Senate floor and say this young young kid from Springfield, Missouri, just ended his political career. But you, you, you Claire McCaskill was my vice chair. Yeah. So, but you didn't end your political career. You did run for treasurer in 19, or 1988. 88. You were unsuccessful against Wendell Bailey. But then you ran again in 1992. And yeah. I, but, but, but one of the interesting yeah. things about when you ran in 88 was that, I mean, for our listeners, it's almost reverse of the situation now where you had the Democrats that had huge majorities in the legislature, but the Republicans controlled most of the statewide offices at the time. So, which was kind of, it's a flip from what it is now. So you were running for, you know, I said for state treasurer in 88, when it still looked like the Republicans still had a hold on most of those offices. And they did. I mean, the only, the only one that won that election was uh, Mel Carnahan for lieutenant governor. Everybody else lost. I came very close against the incumbent. That's when I had the opportunity to go to work uh, for Congressman Gephardt here in St. Louis. Earlier, I'd worked with uh, Senator Eagleton here in St. Louis. And I always say that I think I had uh, the four best mentors in life, uh, Jim Spainhauer, Mel Carnahan, uh, Tom Eagleton, and uh, Dick Gephardt. And the most interesting thing is the first autographed picture of a politician I ever got was from Jack Danforth as a college student, uh, who I've got a tremendous amount of respect for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I enjoy working with people in, of all political persuasions, that are committed to doing what they think is right and mm-hmm. best. Now, was there a common, a key lesson that you learned from all those guys like Gephardt and, and Eagleton? And I mean, because at that point, Gephardt was a big rising star, mm-hmm. had made a failed bid for president in 88, but was, you know, was hot stuff. It was generally considered he would end up as speaker soon. Never did, but mm-hmm. still. So from Gephardt, Eagleton, and some of these other mentors, was there one common thread of what you learned? Integrity. I mean, uh, I was never asked to do anything that was uh, even in the gray area. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for all of them. Uh, And like I said, I couldn't have built a better resume for running for statewide office uh, than having those four leaders uh, uh, because Jim Spainhauer uh, uh, is is as good as it gets uh, ethically. Uh, you know, Mel Carnahan and I came from Birch Street, but we didn't know each other till years later in politics. Uh, Mel and I didn't talk a lot. We didn't have to. We just knew that, uh, you know, we knew, we knew he knew that I would do the, my job and do it well because he put me in as the first elected official to be chairman of the State Housing Development Commission, uh, which can uh, be very problematic uh, in terms of ethics. Uh, and in my, my work with uh, Senator Eagleton and, and uh, Congressman uh, Gephardt, uh, you know, they, they were just four very class people. So you were treasurer for two terms. And then in, I think, 1999, 98, 2000, you decided to run for governor. I'm not exactly about sure. About 98. I can no. t- yeah. yeah. But, but nine, in fact, this was funny because, because Roger Wilson, who was lieutenant governor, um, was expected to run for governor. And I'll never forget this because some of the campaign finance reports came out and you were treasurer and it was unclear what you were doing. I mean, you, you were mm-hmm. talking about it, but you weren't. OK, so all of a sudden, one of the campaign reports come out and you had raised all this money. And then at Democrat Days, Gebhardt came out and endorsed you. And I remember uh, taking the call from Wilson telling me he had decided not to run. And he was right up front. He said that you had you had really moved on the money raising front and uh so even then, I mean, the whole issue of raising money is a key. Th- sure. How do you do that? I mean, because it's not like you were known as a flashy guy, yet you were very strong, very good at raising money. And I believe that this term, like 96, 2000, was a time when campaign finance limits were in place yes. in Missouri. So, yeah. And off and on when in my 2000 correct, race. Correct. Some days they on. were off, some days they were on. Well, the, the key to... When I, when I ran for the first time in Springfield, Missouri, I was running against a young man that uh, uh, actually had had a, a piece of legislation with his name on it that got passed out of the legislature. And there was no donation limits then? No donation limits. Okay. But, okay. I mean, here, that was a point in time when Democrats didn't allow Republicans to have their name on any bill coming out of the legislature. But, but he, t- he teamed uh, with uh, a state representative uh, out of Kansas City uh, and a Democrat. 
had his name on a bill. He was uh, good-looking, attractive. Was it Bill Owen? Was Bill that his Owens? name? I was yeah. looking it up on this site called rcampaigns.com, but continue. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, and uh, everybody thought that he was a shoe-in to get reelected. Uh, and so I started walking in March and walked every day except for five till November. And the only way I had a chance of winning is being able to see people at their doorstep and let them see me and realize that I didn't have horns on and I was okay. And I'd talk about, you know, I'd been to SMS and gone to school there. Those people had come from a rural background. I came from a farm. I'd always try to figure out a relationship between the two of us beyond the political aspect of it. And if I saw a lot of uh, Republican yard signs in, in a yard, I would do, work very hard to see if I could be the only Democrat that had a yard sign in that yard. Just so the subliminal message is, you know, I'm a Republican, but this guy's OK. Because it's interesting that 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 run up to 2000, um, it's often been compared to what has happened in 2012 to 2016. There was kind of initially a feeling that Attorney General Chris Coster and uh, Treasurer's wife were on this primary collision course. And Zweifel took himself out of the running very early so people could unite around Coster. Now, I know that there was kind of a phantom primary going on between you and Roger Wilson that lasted a little bit longer, but it seemed like the result was the same. You didn't have to go through a Democratic primary, and it was you versus Jim Talon in 2000. Yeah, I mean, about two years out. I mean, it was pretty much... Well, the the, the th- Joe mentioned it earlier. I mean, the work ethic that I had uh, as run for state representative uh, was the same one I uh, had running for for state treasurer and then later uh, as governor. Uh, you know, my, my, you know, when Mel Carnan finished his race for governor, I think he had something like 3,500 contributors to his campaign. When I finished my race for governor, I had over 12,000. Uh, and that was just doing it one at a time. And I actually used the telephone just like I'd done the door-to-door. Uh, you know, that was my way to go uh, door-to-door across the state of Missouri. And what I wanted to do was get enough donors so that no one donor or no one group of donors could say, you know, we put you here. They all put me there. And so that way I felt like I had more flexibility to do what I thought was best. Not really that way in Missouri politics anymore. Now, one one of the most memorable things, and I do want to mention this, this was the day before the election in 2000. This is when Al Gore had the rally at the America Center. And this is about two and a half weeks after Carnahan had died in that awful plane crash. And uh, it was raining really hard. I was there. And um, your plane was late. And I'll never forget that because all these Democrats are on stage and they were waiting for you. And I think because of the plane accident just two and a half weeks before, the tension in the room, I'll never forget this, because there's tens of, there's probably 15,000 Democrats there. The tension was just overwhelming. And when you finally walked on the stage, the place went nuts. The place went mm-hmm. nuts. And part of it was, be- I mean, how I did you feel that. about that? I mean, because, I mean, as I said, yeah. you're not a flashy guy. I mean, you mm-hmm. won and you've, you've yeah. had a really strong career. But I'll never forget that. The place went crazy. And part of it was just this feeling of relief. Because I'll never forget that, that everyone was so, I mean, they were really, because it was storming outside. I'll never forget that. What was, I mean, what... Were you flying a private plane? If I recall, it was. Probably at that a time. A small plane. I never did that after that election. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was I was at the airport, you know, I think in Kent, Missouri, when Mel's plane went down. Uh, and I, I was waiting there with the security person uh, for Mel at that time. So, I mean, it, uh, it, it, was, it, it was a very emotional time uh, for all of us in general, but particularly because uh, uh, Governor Carnahan and his family and my family were very close. When we, I'd come to St. Louis uh, with our boys, a lot of times they would stay with Russ and his family here. And when those uh, when they went to came to Jeff City, uh, we would take care of their children at our place while they went and did the functions. Because that, that the 2000 election cycle in Missouri is often personified or remembered because Mel Carnahan posthumously beat John Ashcroft. But your race with Jim Talent was extremely close, and it turned out to be very consequential generally. Um, but 
obviously because of the tragic circumstances, it doesn't get remembered as much. Well, but I mean, the thing that I always tell people, uh, I think that race in 2000 was probably the cleanest race I've ever been involved in mm-hmm. uh, because there was very stark differences uh, philosophically between Jim Talent and myself, but there was uh, there was no bitterness between the two of us. Uh, uh, and we would go into these debates and, and different functions, and I would state my position. He would state his. I've had Jim uh, on my program at Webster University, yeah. uh, along with Peter Kinder and Catherine Hannaway and all the others. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I got started in politics because Robert Kennedy was involved in politics. Uh, I got involved in student government because of a professor encouraged me from public service. Uh, and so I still think that public life is an honorable profession, and I want to encourage young people of all parties to get involved. They make up their own mind which direction they want to go philosophically. But I want good people in government because that represents all of us. Well, then you go to 2004. Okay, so from 2000 when everyone's relieved, okay, you're elected governor. You're succeeding Roger Wilson, who held it for three months. And I was actually with Wilson the last day I was in office and with him with him as he's packing up and then handing you it was like handing you the key he said you know you guys met outside and switched the key well then things change within a few months because joe maxwell who's a state senator who had won for lieutenant governor the uh, battle for his senate seat republican won john carthorne john carthorne and so within three months all of a sudden you're looking at a Republican-controlled Senate for the first time 50 in, years. in 50 years. And Peter Kinder, now lieutenant governor, but at, at that time state senator from um, Cape Girardeau area, was uh, president pro tem. So all of a sudden you're you're looking at a split legislature, and within two years, Catherine Hannaway is speaker and you're, you're hosed. The Republicans are in charge. I'm just interested when you look back over that, that whole f- four years— mm-hmm. What 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 that was like, and what do you? I mean, when you look back on it, any observations? Well, uh, several ob- observations. One, what most people didn't realize, and I didn't fully realize until I was governor itself, uh, the '90s had been very good to, for Missouri economically. And the economically, people were happy, and and uh, they had their spirit back again. Uh, but the numbers in, in 2000 economically started uh, dipping pretty dramatically in Missouri. Uh, and that period from 1999 or early 2000 to 2001 is probably the deepest slide in our economy than any time in the history of this state. Mm-hmm. Because it was, and what made the slide so bad, it was, had been so high and it had dropped so far. 18 days after I was in office, I had to cut over $180 million out of the budget. And I was told at the time that was the deepest core cuts in the history of this state. And within the, the four years uh, time period, I cut over a billion dollars out of the state budget out of about uh, a 6.2 uh, general revenue budget. And it budget. was probably exacerbated after the 9-11 terrorist attacks yeah. because the, the economy cratered even more briefly. Right. Not as bad after between 2008 and 2010, but still pretty significant. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you, you had all of these – you had the, the, the um, uh, plane crash of Governor Carnahan. Uh, and then you had uh, September the 11th. You had the economy playing all of that. You had the Republicans taking over the Senate for the first time in 50 years. And in the House, it was a, a margin of 11 votes, which means six people went to the bathroom at the wrong time. You no longer had a majority there. And Catherine Hanway was really controlling that agenda. Their agenda was to make sure that I didn't serve more than four years. Uh, and then you had uh, the the economics come in. You know, when I the first year, I think the Chamber of Commerce was running ads that uh, Missouri was one of the uh, uh, primary states losing jobs in the country. By the end of my term, it was after the primary, we were one of the uh, states leading in job creation. But I hit the cycle on the on the downward uh, spin. Now, one of the things that you did while you were governor that was. I guess, not well received by the Republicans, but probably in response to all these budgetary concerns is you came out explicitly for some tax increases, including the cigarette tax, I believe a couple of other things. Mm -hmm. And um, it was interesting because obviously your successor, Matt Blunt, didn't do that. And I want to play a clip from current Governor Jay Nixon, who, when he was running in 2008, uh, through a spokesman told me, quote unquote, Jay won't raise taxes. 
And this is in response to a question that I had about whether his advocacy for like a gas tax increase kind of broke that pledge right there. And Missourians understand um, that uh, you don't get something for nothing and user fees to, uh, uh, to, to, to build infrastructure is something we've done in other areas. So the fact that the governor, current governor, won't even acknowledge that a gas tax increase is a tax increase, he calls it a user fee. I, I'm just wondering, not for you to comment on the mechanics or anything, but whether that may just be kind of a subliminal reaction to what happened during your governorship when you actually did advocate for tax increases, you got there was some political pushback to that entire situation. Well, I, th- I think if you talk to any political pundits, they would tell you you never call for a tax increase, you use user fees or whatever. Uh, it's still an increase uh, uh, on taxes of one kind or another. You know, I, I come from a background uh, being, a, I think, fiscally conservative. I mean, I, it, it, dry, it dr- drove me up a wall to see waste anywhere. Uh, but I think there are certain responsibilities you have as a society and as a government of your people to provide the resources uh, for, so they can be successful. Uh, good highways. We've got the sixth largest highway system in the country, but the lowest gas tax in the country or one of the lowest. Uh, the lowest. It is the, the lowest. lowest. I mean, there's no way those two can, can ever meet and, and service well. We either got to reduce the amount of roads that we're taking responsibility for, or we got to improve the roads that we have through some type of revenue. Now, why do you think you are now for the the tobacco tax in 2002? It came close, but it didn't it didn't make it, even though there were some. I mean, Gene Carnahan, who by then was in, in, in the Senate, was supporting it. Uh, I'm interested in when looking back at the gas tax and cigarette tax and other things that you advocated, are there things that you think may, maybe if you'd done it a little differently, you might have been successful, or do you think it wouldn't have mattered? No, I think particularly with the gas tax, uh, you know, keep re- remember that we had passed, quote, the 15-year plan to have a four-lane highway um, among all cities in the state of Missouri for 5,000 population more, which could never be accomplished under the revenue they had. So I had the sense that the people wanted to get it out of their system. Uh, and so I saw the opportunity to, to put on the gas tax, which was needed to build our roads. But uh, just importantly, I wanted the people to feel like they had an opportunity to send the message. And they sent the message. That gave me the opportunity to put people on the Highway Commission, Jim Anderson and, and the others, that truly turned it around. But, I, but those people could not have turned that around if we'd had the same atmosphere as we had before. So in 2004, um, you were challenged in the Democratic primary by Claire McCaskill, the, then the, then the auditor. state auditor. Yes. Um, she was successful in defeating you for renomination. We had her on our show, I think about two years ago, where she, we asked her what her toughest campaign was because she had, by that point, she had run state rep campaigns, state auditor campaigns, Jackson County prosecutor, and she mentioned 2004 was the toughest for her. Here's what she had to say. I would say the governor's race was the toughest because it was so lonely. Um, you know, when you take on a sitting governor of your own party, you have to kind of steel yourself for the inevitable, which is that the vast majority of people that have been your friends and supporters for years are no longer your friends and supporters. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I made huge mistakes in that campaign. I assumed once I won the primary, I completely underestimated Matt Blunt. I completely underestimated how badly people in Missouri wanted to t- change teams, not just quarterbacks. So that's what Claire McCaskill had to say about the 2004 campaign. I'm interested about your reflections from that campaign because I'm, I'm sure that they weren't all positive, but I'm sure that there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Well, I mean, I, I think she's right. It, it, it is when you're taking on somebody in your own party. Uh, it is a much uh, more awkward situation. If, for example, Roger Wilson had stayed in that governor's race, that would have been a much tougher race uh, uh, with him just because we'd sponsored legislation together. Uh, we knew each other, uh, liked each other. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can see where Claire would have that feeling. I mean, the, the opportunity that Claire had, and she took advantage of it, I made a lot of decisions that weren't uh, particularly politically popular, but I thought they were the right decisions. Looking at the budget in 2001 uh, in the situation we were in, I made the decision. Uh, I didn't know how long I was going to be there, but I'd always heard people talk about, well, you never trust a politician. They'll say just what you want to hear when you want to hear it. 
And I said, I'm going to do what I think is the right thing for the people of this state, and then I'll let the chips fall where they may. She was coming out of the auditor's office, so she could very easily say, well, you know, if this had been done or that had been done, uh, then we wouldn't be in the situation they're in. And that's pretty hard to argue. It's kind of like uh, Trump today saying, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And you really can't question because he's not been in a position to take that responsibility before. Yeah. Now, one of the very interesting, overlook, I think many times overlooked aspects of the 2004 primary is that, okay, the uh, General Assembly had put a gay marriage ban. They wanted a gay marriage ban uh, before voters. You put it on the August ballot instead of the November ballot when it would have been the Democrat versus Republican presidential contest wrapped up in this. You put it on in that primary ballot. So even though, and there are some people who thought that, granted, Republicans and Democrats had a separate primary, but that still, that that may have ginned up some of the um, anti-Holden vote because you had some conservatives who were furious that you had put it on the August ballot. At the same time, in fact, I wrote a story at the time when I was at the Post-Dispatch that Kerry and John Edwards uh, were like so grateful <laughs> because <laughs> because it was not on. <laughs> and I even asked, I even got to ask John Edwards that. But um, so I'm just interested in your take on A, your decision and what, what impact do you think that the fact that the gay marriage ban at the time, which was very popular, got 70 percent of the vote. Uh, was on the August ballot the same time you were battling with Claire McCaskill. Yeah. Well, no, I made the decision. Uh, I had a lot of input from everybody on the ticket at the state level or the national level that if there's any way possible they wanted it to be on the primary ballot, not the general election ballot. Uh, most of the Democrats thought that if it was on the general election ballot, their chances of getting elected uh, were slim and none in the general election. Uh, looking at our polls, uh, uh, I had a lead. It wasn't a big lead, but I thought it was a sustainable lead. I made the decision to put it on the primary so that they wouldn't have to deal with it, and hopefully I wouldn't have to deal with it in a general election. I mean, did, did you feel it all? I mean, some people thought in some ways it was a kamikaze decision, that you were basically taking one for the team. Well, um, uh, yes, but you know, I, I go back to what I said a while ago. I, I, I made up my mind that I was going to do what I thought was the right thing to do and hopefully the people would understand and accept that. Uh, one, just kind of one last question on that amendment. Obviously, it's kind of been invalidated now by the U.S. Supreme Court. But at the time, as, as Joe alluded to it, it one was 70 percent of the vote. Like it, there was no real organized campaign against it. You had, I think, even some Democrats who voted to put it on the ballot. The people I point to often are, you know, Clint's wife voted to put that on the ballot. Former Senator Paul Lavota, former Senator Ken Jacob, which I still don't quite understand. He'll have to explain You never that. understand Ken anyway. No. So. <laughs> but it seems like now, and, and we had a guest on Gina Walsh, who is the only person who's currently in the legislature now who voted not to put that on the ballot. So do you think it's just time has passed enough to where it's just more acceptable for mainly Democrats and maybe even some moderate Republicans to be against that type of thing? Or is it the, I, I, the climate? Yeah. Well, I think the climate's changed a lot. And, and we're, we're talking about the gay marriage. But, you know, some of the things I'm, I'm most proud of, uh, I appointed over uh, 200 African-Americans to positions. A third of my cabinet was African-American. When I came into the governorship of uh, Missouri ranked number 41 in terms of women in leadership positions. You had Jane Duker. You brought in Jane Duker. I brought in Jane Duker. Former politically speaking, yeah. by the way. Well, and when I left office, we ranked number five with women in leadership positions. I set up the first Hispanic organization. My whole focus was to open this up and let everybody sit at the table. And I'll be candid with you. Probably some of those decisions were the most politically uh, bad decisions you could make because what I was doing is replacing typically a white male with either an African-American or a female uh, in leadership position. Two of the four people on conservation when I left office were women. Six of the nine people on board of curators at the University of Missouri were African-American. I put two women on the Supreme Court and, uh, and a uh, blind uh, Jewish fella uh, on the Supreme Richard Court. Teitelman. Richard Teitelman. Extremely nice man, by the way. Well, one, of the, one of the nicest bright. people. Very bright I as mean, well. I, my goal 
was for Missouri to reflect the world going forward, because I thought that was our best chance to be successful economically, is if people could, around the world could look at us and say, hey, this is a place that I could start a business or I could raise a family because there's people that I can relate to in that culture. Now, before we kind of transition to, into present day, and one question that I have is, if the real legacy of your governorship is you were kind of this four-year dam or, you know, blocker between the Republican agenda that eventually got passed after you left, because it was a pretty large agenda dealing with workers' comp, dealing with Medicaid, dealing with all sorts of stuff, dealing uh, with the legal profession. You were able to veto all of that, and there weren't the numbers to override it. Except on concealed carry. Except on concealed carry. So was... You know, there's obviously your your loss in 2004 gets mentioned, but was that one of the big legacies that you were able to stop a lot of that stuff before it basically became too late to stop it after 2005? Well, I mean, I I was doing the things that I thought was in our state's best interest. Uh, for example, you, you mentioned conceal and carry. Um, August Bush called me and asked me to sign that legislation. I told him, uh, no, I couldn't do it. Uh, he, that's when Anheuser-Busch started helping the, my, my opponent in the primary. Uh, yeah, I wrote about that at the time. But the thing is, I still respect him as much today as I did then. I mean, he didn't ask somebody else to come and talk to me and give me what he wanted. And you're he, talking about August Bush the third, the right? Third. And okay. if you read Terry Ganey's book, Under the Influence, the History of Anheuser-Busch, he might be been the most competent of the Bush people to be in charge of that because there were some pretty incompetent leaders of that. But continue. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, the thing is, first of all, I respect him for being willing to do it himself and not send somebody on his staff to give me a message. Uh, I couldn't do it, and, and I told him I couldn't do it. I didn't waffle on it. Uh, that, that was, that's not how I was raised. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I do what I think is best. I take his advice from as many people as possible. But at the end of the day, I always focused on what I thought was in the best interest of the middle class and our culture and for kids like me coming throughout Missouri to have a chance for success. Now, as Jason pointed out, there was a number of things that didn't get passed but got passed later, or like concealed carry when you refused to sign but it got overridden. Now now here we are a decade later, and you're looking back at some of those things that have been into law. Have some things happened that you were like, yeah, I thought that was going to happen. This is why I tried to block it. I'm really upset about this. Or is it other things that, well, the impact wasn't as bad as I thought it would be? Are there any of those particular issues, I mean, looking back over the last 10 years? Well, I, I think the whole issue of guns had been a disaster. Uh, uh, I mean, I, and I come from a farm family, a rural family, a hunting family. Uh, but the idea that anybody can walk around basically with a, a pistol in their pocket uh, that doesn't give me more security than before. Uh, I think it makes it very difficult for us to attract new businesses that come into many of these environments when they know that uh, you know, it's pretty w a wide open uh, Old West town in how we, we operate. Um, but you know, the people have spoken. Uh, and so we've got to try to figure out how to make it work. And hopefully one of these days people will understand that maybe that wasn't the best decision well, at all. It's interesting that you mentioned that because this does kind of nicely transition into present day. And I'm not asking you this question for you to, you know, bash people. But I have noticed that not only the current governor, Jay Nixon, but also his potential successor, Chris, Co Chris his potential successor, Chris Coster, have either kind of just let quote-unquote pro-gun measures go through uh, without a signature. Or in Coster's case, he was endorsed by the National Rifle Association last cycle and proudly wanted it, essentially. Has there been just kind of a change in mentality among Missouri Democrats that's just not popular to be for gun control Or anymore? they just gave up. Or yeah, just I, gave I think that they, that they see that there's other issues that they have a chance of um, uh, addressing. And by getting on that issue, it probably would hurt them doing other things. Uh, I hope for the day when both the pro-gun and, and the anti-gun people could sit down and try to figure out what makes sense. 
because, you know, right now it doesn't make sense. We've taken money out of mental health and we're building prisons instead of educational institutions. Uh, you know, it's, it, guns are running rampant out there uh, across our culture. Uh, I just don't think it's, uh, it's healthy. So now in 2015, we're almost on the precipice of 2016. Two of your legislative friends or adversaries, Peter Kinder and Catherine Hanaway, are running for governor. Chris Coster, as I mentioned, is probably going to be the Democratic nominee. Just generally, what do you think of this gubernatorial cycle as somebody who's run for governor a couple of times? I'm interested to hear your views on that. Well, I, I think, one, I don't think the Republican field is set. Uh, at all. I think Catherine Hannaway is a very skilled politician. I think Peter Kinder uh, is a lieutenant governor and skilled, uh, too. Uh, both of them, I think, this is the last race they will run, so they know that it, they, they've got to run uh, this time. Uh, you've got uh, Bruner out, getting ready to run out there with a lot of money, and then you've got a young man by the name of Eric Greitens. Who you in, know. Who I know. Yeah, we have to be that clear. You yeah. know Greitens. Yes. Uh, and and Eric and I have known each other uh, for for some time. Uh, I tried to convince him, and I thought I uh, was being pretty convincing that he should be a Democrat. Uh, he decided he's a Republican. Uh, I told him that I'm supporting Chris Coster, uh, and I am supporting Chris Coster because I think Chris has a much better view of Missouri and the world uh, than most, and we need a governor that can lead. Now, when you look at the fact that you got Hannaway and Kinder, who you know, who your adversaries back a decade ago, are there any? I mean, and 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 you're looking at this crowded Republican field. Anything of interest as you're just watching it as an observer, somebody who used to play the game? Uh, well, I mean, I I enjoy watching uh, what is going on. I uh, honestly, I I feel somewhat that uh, it's unfortunate that we don't have the, uh, what I would say, the Jack Danforths and the Tom Eagletons and the Dick Gephardts and the Jim Spainhowers uh, in the field today. I think uh, the unlimited amount of money in politics has been a disaster. The rich are getting richer and the more powerful and the poor are getting poorer and poorer and less and less influence. Mm -hmm. And that concerns me because any culture that the middle class disappears, I think, has really opened itself up for a tremendous amount of economic and political and social turmoil. turmoil. Yeah, but it seems like just like with uh, concealed and carrying guns, the genie might be out of that bottle unless there's a ballot initiative because the, none of the Republicans support campaign finance limits, and neither does Chris Coster, frankly. So you're going to need to get that you know, around the legislature and the executive primarily. Ha, have you thought at all about like leading any sort of initiative effort on campaign finance, or do you feel that from where you are now it's best to observe? Well, it, it, one, I couldn't have any influence. I mean, I, I was the chief sponsor of campaign finance reform uh, when I was in the legislature. Uh, still support it. Uh, but... There, to me, there's more important issues that, that, that I want to deal with, and, and that centers around education, economic development, uh, energy, quality of life, uh, and Missouri's future. Uh, I really, I still believe, because we've got two sons uh, in college, uh, and both of them uh, are going to be looking to what they want to do in their careers. Uh, and my wife and I still enjoy uh, uh, interacting with people in political circles, but uh, our goal and my goal is to do still what I can to make this world a better place for my children, grandchildren, and yours to live. So I have one last surprise before we sign off, and I didn't tell you before the show, so hopefully this is not too surprising. This is an article from 2004, the Columbia Daily Tribune, when I was in college. If you, you notice, there is a picture of you with a young-looking person who happens to be me, Jason Rosenbaum. <laughs> The story behind this is I was picking up a pizza for my then-girlfriend and her mother, and I saw you kind of campaigning outside of Shakespeare's Pizza, and I was like, that's the governor of Missouri. I need to get a picture of him just so I could show, <laughs> you know, that I met you. And we got a picture together, and little did I know, the photographer for the Columbia Tribune at the time, Michael McNamara, took that picture, and this is the last image, I guess, you, you were of that primary. 
So I guess I have two questions. Number one, did you ever think in a million years that the same person on this picture would be interviewing you right now? <laughs> and two, do you remember that at all? <laughs> well, if I if He's I was lie. <laughs> if, if I was in public life, I remember that very well. But uh, uh, honestly, no, I don't. But I, I, tell I didn't you what, think so. I, I enjoy mm. Shakespeare's pizza. It's uh, uh, unfortunate. I, I love pizza in general, but Shakespeare's very now. Where good. do you reside now? Just in general. No, we, we still live in Jefferson City. I teach here in St. Louis, have a public policy program here. Got a vineyard on the Gasconade River, and hopefully uh, uh, early next year we'll have the first bottle of Holden wine. Whoa, talk about this vineyard, because here we got— Could we, Chris, or Kit Bond is a, is a chestnut, chestnut grower, yeah, and you're a winery person. Yeah, so talk about what sort of wine are we talking about? Here? It's Norton. Remember, I signed that very important piece of legislation making the Norton grape the state grape of Missouri while I was governor. <laughs> and then 10 years later you're growing. <laughs> but, you know, again, I'd always, because uh, when I was governor, I, I, I wanted to change the Department of Agriculture. I wanted it to be the plant and life sciences, and I really focused a lot on that. I came from a farm. Uh, my family farm is too far away for me to spend uh, much time. We got a little bit of land on the Gasconade, and so John Held and Stonehill Winery uh, are working with me, and we've planted 200 grapevines, and it's the Holden Vineyard, uh, the uh, the Governor's Reserve at Norton. So how long have you been doing this? Well, this is about the sixth to seventh year now. Really? Well, and so it takes it, about five years for the, the vines to mature to where you start. To so this is red wine? This is red wine. Yeah. So I think that all six gubernatorial candidates should go and try your wine. <laughs> yeah, you can have it roasted chestnuts from Kit Bond. So where is your wine sold at? Well, it, it will be Stonehill. Okay. Uh, they'll be the one distributor. They're the ones making money off of it, if anybody does. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it's I enjoy being out and uh, in, in doing it. And uh, every year we have uh, uh, volunteers that come out and the pickers, uh, Gary Collins, who you may remember yeah. from my office, and his wife and, and several others, Patrick Lynn and uh, – I haven't got Jane Duker out there yet, but I'm I'm still working on that. Jane, if you're listening to this podcast, we want to put you to work on the winery. <laughs> on, on that note, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. It was a real pleasure. And I'm going to probably have Joe take a picture of us with this for, okay. for laughs. Well, and, and I, too, I would like to thank all the people that uh, uh, helped me throughout my political career, both in office and out of office. And uh, particularly my wife, because uh, I tell people without Lori, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do all the things I've, I've got to do. And so there's a shout out to her right yeah. there. That's right. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I believe you're on Twitter at Gov Holden, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. So follow the governor there as well. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Oh, yeah.